Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day and welcome to the call. 10 stocks picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is a Tuesday, the 2nd of May. And our two experts on the show here today, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and Luke Winchester from Merriweather Capital. Welcome to both of you. Um, Scott, of course, RBA Day today. Uh, I, I won't ask you what you're expecting, but um, do, you, do you follow macro moves? I mean, do, do they actually influence your investment decisions? Mate, I love that question because for most of my investment career, the answer has been no. And honestly, I think we're getting back to no again. The the, the reality was we had this really weird, it wasn't new normal, it was a new temporary, uh, where it kind of did matter because when rates were 0.1%, the official cash rate here, almost the same in the US, you really had to have a view, I think, on whether that was permanent or temporary. I mean, Buffett himself said, if rates stay low, stocks are cheap. And that was kind of the the challenge, right? So for, for, for years before that, I'd been saying, don't worry about macro, the macro doesn't matter, it's only what companies do over the long term. That still remains true, by the way, but what it means for the, the markets they operate in, the business's own you know, uh, competitive set, uh, the price you pay for those shares, the cost of the debt they might carry, um, the chance those companies can or can't raise further capital at decent rates. It was an issue for a while. And so kind of, uh, you know, it, it's nice to get back to, no, I don't care anymore. Or I don't need to care anymore because changes from this point, at least I'll asterisk on that for a second, from this point don't matter as much. The asterisk is very quickly that it depends on what happens over the next 12 months because earnings are still going to reflect the last 12 months of results. By the time we get to June 30, yes, rates have increased right through that period, but realistically slow-ish and, and got to a level where the new normal doesn't really kick in until about now. Uh, so I uh, made a bit of both. I, I still am focused on, frankly, coming out of COVID as well, uh, focused on this, this underlying earnings power, that three-word phrase, so incredibly important because when you add back the cost of debt, when you normalize for what happened to demand and supply and inflation and costs, over that last really kind of three years, right, since, mm. since COVID reared its ugly head. Um, I don't think we're back to a, a proper normal yet. I hope desperately the next financial year is the first financial year of relative normality that we end up having. Depends on what happens with rates and inflation in the meantime. So long answer, mate. Um, I, I do care where the company's future is going to look different to the past because of rates changing and inflation impacting. Overall, I'd rather not care. Uh, and I'm glad we're getting back to that, that, that point. Yeah, you make a good point there, particularly for the new investor. What does normal look like? Hey, right. Luke, uh, what are your thoughts then uh, just in terms of you know where interest rates are and, and the broader economy and how that influences your investment decisions? Oh, look, I think that was a fantastic answer from Scott. Um, and he's boiled down to eventually what my investing approach is, Andrew, which is not to have my decisions influenced by the macro directly, but how does it affect at a micro level the companies I want to invest in? Um, and sometimes that's easier said than done. You know, travel names, COVID, the, the macro was easy. Um, uh, finance companies with rising interest rates, the macro is pretty easy, but it's a bit more nuanced. And, and Scott's right. We're coming potentially, hopefully, back to a new normal, um, and so you know that should lead to that that underlying um, earnings power that's got alerted to coming back out for a lot of businesses. But remains to be seen whether that's the case. Um, things always shift and change in the meantime. But look, you have to be cognizant of what's happening from a macro point of view. But for me, it's how I implement that back to the micro level for for each individual company, rather than you know making the top down sorts of decisions. All right. Yeah, fascinating view from both of you. All right, well, let's get into the stocks we're looking at in the first half of the show. Woolworths, Endeavour, MA Financial, Service Stream, and Silk Laser. Our stock of the day is Qantas. And Scott, 
I don't know if you've been following that task of finding an AFL CEO, which uh, I reckon maybe the the task to replace Alan Joyce has been even longer than that long-winded process. Andrew, I reckon it almost certainly has, mate. He's uh, he's hung along, hang on, hang on, Joyce. And I, I got to say, man, I'm you know, I think in the financial world we have a slightly different view to maybe the rest of the country, or well, maybe not. Uh, Luke will give us his view in a minute. I think Alan Joyce has actually done a really good job of running what is all generally a tough and ugly business to be in, which is airlines. Um, you know, I, I generally have a view that if you if you can leave uh, the post of CEO of an airline without going broke during your tenure, you've probably done a pretty good job uh, because it's a terrible business, generally speaking, with generally awful economics. So if you can escape unscathed, that's almost a win in itself. Um, uh, Joyce has obviously got some brickbats around labor relations and potentially the brand. And I have to say that may still be playing out. So uh, again, speaking of asterisks, because I was earlier, I'll put another one on, on Qantas's performance thus far at least. Least. Uh, I've got to say, I they reckon if you're going to take on a new job, you want to have an easy act to follow. Uh, I'm not sure whether I would want to take over as CEO of Qantas. So take the pay packet, maybe it's worth it. But, um, you know, this is going to be tough. We know airlines have traditionally been terrible businesses. We know COVID's been tough. Um, we know the situation that the airline is in now, having had effectively restricted domestic capacity, both Virgin and Qantas independently. I, I always want to be clear. I'm not alleging any sort of inappropriate or cartel behavior, but they're both making very rational capacity constraint decisions. We've just seen profits go through the roof for Qantas. Uh, Virgin tipping, tipping at a profit for the first time in years. I'm not sure that's necessarily a peak. I'm not going to make predictions, but I have to say, uh, given that's so rare for airlines to make any sort of decent money, mm. I don't want. Uh, you know, again, if, you, if you're staking your career on taking over from Alan Joyce and doing even better, I dare say that's going to be a very, very difficult task indeed. All right. So um, obviously, you're not buying it. If you hold the stock, though, would you continue to do so? No, mate, I wouldn't. Uh, right. I mean, look, I'm always mindful. If if I, I have never liked Qantas, if you own it, you have a different view to me and to start with. But the reality is that these are cyclical businesses generally. Now, there's always, you know, the first time for everything. Maybe finally, airlines are rational enough to be then profitable businesses thereafter. And we look back at the last 50 years and say, thank goodness that's over. That's always possible. I don't think it's very likely, particularly internationally. And I have to say, if you look at local ticket prices, if you look at local capacity, other things, if both Qantas and Virgin remain very, very, very self-interestedly rational mm. and there is no third or fourth airline, governments don't change the rules, there's not, there's not an inconceivable chance. They remain reasonably profitable. But I think the share price already allows for that. I think if you're buying today, you have to have some view of how they're going to go even better in future. I don't know what that future would need to look like to grow profits from this already elevated point. So, yeah. no, if I own Qantas shares, I'd sell them today. All right. Okay. So, Luke, yeah, it's currently Qantas uh, shares off uh, two and three quarters of a cent market having its say. So, Vanessa Hudson, she's going to take over in November. Uh, in fact, the chairman, Richard Goyd, is saying the appointment allows for a smooth transition. Qantas is extremely well positioned. So, do you agree with that? What are your thoughts? Um, for the vast majority of large cap businesses, Andrew, I think that the revolving chair of a CEO probably doesn't matter a great deal. You've got ingrained processes and institutions and bureaucracies, to be quite honest, with most large businesses. And the person at the top probably doesn't make that much of a difference. And there's a small handful of businesses where it actually does. And I think Qantas is one of them because Scott made the fantastic point. This is an industry that is just cutthroat. It's so tough to eke out a dollar and you need the right person at the top. And Alan Joyce, you know, famously when he came over, took on the unions and, and sort of um, focused really hard at a profitability level for Qantas and getting it to where it is today. So, you know, as a passenger, of Qantas, of course. I don't. I don't think any of us are in love with Alan Joyce, but shareholders in the financial world, I think you at least have to respect what he's done, and um, it, it's probably rational to me. The share price has has this sort of reaction to the news. Turning to the business and, and where does a business go from here? Again, I think Scott's pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, it's had a really good run through COVID. Um, a lot of that is is the utilisation that's coming through from not only the pent up demand of travel, but the restricted supply. And we just know this is an industry where su supply and demand always um, trend to a happy medium where no one really makes any sort of super profits and 
you know, at, at a group level across the whole industry, it's probably a loss-making sector. Um, I expect that normality to come back at some time. How long, who knows? Um, but I think Scott's right, the share price is quite optimistic that you'll get a few years of outsized profits from this business, and I'm just not quite sure that's the case. The other point as well is that as much respect as you want to give Alan Joyce, I think it's pretty clear he's probably underinvested in this business over the last few years. Um, there's been a few broken notes floating around that they've been a bit light on CapEx, a bit light on fleet maintenance and um, new planes coming into the fleet. So the new CEO's probably got a bit of a hospital pass here and, and you know, maybe has to spend two or three years really reinvesting back into that core. Um, but that's the cycle of this sort of business. And, and you know, fair play to Alan Joyce, you, you ride the cycle and he goes out on top. That's, you know, that's that's what he, what he would probably always aim to do. So, look, I would sell it as well. I, I probably can't sit here and tell someone who's owned it for a long time to sell everything, but you've had a fantastic run. I think there's a lot of question marks over travel and Qantas specifically. Taking profits here, I think, is a, is a pretty prudent decision for, for most people. Okay. All right. That is a double sell for Qantas. All right. Let's get into uh, the stocks uh, that we're taking a closer look at today. The first one uh, is Woolworths. Now, in fact, um, it's uh, come up with its third quarter trading update today. Sales increasing 8%. Uh, Chief Executive uh, Brad uh, Banducci saying that in general, customer spending is stable uh, and they're cautiously optimistic that Woolies is well-placed to navigate the current trading challenges. So Luke, what are your thoughts on Woolies? It all looked good to me, Andrew. I mean, um, you know, uh, 7.6% sales growth is is, is fantastic. Um, you know, we wonder where inflation's coming from. Woolworths tells us 5.8% of that was from price alone and obviously volumes making up the rest. Um, you know, the commentary, I think, in this update was probably more important than the numbers. You know, again, go back to the intro. Scott made a fantastic point. These numbers are always backward looking, but we're dealing with a market that is always forward looking. So what the market really wants to know is not so much what were your third quarter sales result. That's, that's a piece of information that's important, but probably more important is what are you seeing moving forward? You know, the commentary around the food, the core food part of the business was still pretty positive. They're seeing supply chain issues, some elevated, you know, inflationary pressures in some spots. But from the sounds of it, it's quite manageable. And they've got the efficiencies and the scale where probably better than anyone, um, you know, in particular Coles, I suppose, can manage those pressures and, and come out the other side. And um, they're very creative in the way they drive value for their customers, not so much just with um, sticker prices on, you know, goods, but, um, you know, um, the rewards plans, healthy life, a few incubator startups. So I, I actually, I really like what Woolworths does around that core brand. Um, Big W has been a tough segment for them for a while. It had a half decent quarter um you know 5.7 percent growth but again the commentary is where it was important and and um brad the ceo pointed out that that growth moderated over the quarter and i suspect that exit run rate was much lower growth and they sort of said it's been a pretty slow start to the winter um, apparel season so you know eyes will probably turn to that but you know this is this is a grocery business big w's a, a bit of a, a side to that now um 26 times earnings. I think you go back and look at Woolies through history, that's probably a fair price. Um, I think they continue to drive, um, you know, growth through both price and, and volume. Um, the business can obviously drive those efficiencies, maintain that scale. For me, I think it's a hold, Andrew. If you're someone who is really nervous about where we are um, in the macro environment and you want that ultra defensive sort of stock, you could probably have a small position in Woolies, like, um, you know, build up a small position in Woolies today. But, you know, at, at the valuation today and, and the results they've given you, it's it's a hold. Mm. Okay. All right. Scott, your thoughts? And I guess how it compares with its, its peers such as Coles and Metcash. Yeah, my turn to give Luke a wrap. He's been very generous uh, so far this program, but I think he's he's absolutely nailed the description of Woolies as a business. This is three and a half thousand odd stores, two hundred thousand employees. So in terms of a an important cog in the in the kind of global or sorry local economic story, it's very much a, a really important part. Um, and I think that inflation number to me is really important. And speaking of the new normal, mate, or, or the old normal. You know, it's really important. We would have said before for, for years, for almost a decade and a half, probably maybe longer, we would have said, oh, 8% growth, that sales growth, that's great. Look look how well they're doing. Uh, when you then say, hang on, uh, you know, three quarters of that is inflation, then it, it's just a reminder of how you need to, we need to discount back sales growth 
uh, it's probably more important than ever to look at the gross margin line, the gross profit line, rather than the pure sales line. Because if, if sales are growing, but cost of goods is growing about as fast, then it's kind of you know the old profitless prosperity line. I know the Woolies is profitless, by the way, but that growth is largely coming from passing on higher costs rather than genuinely selling more product or at a meaningfully higher price. Now, again, as Luke said, there is some volume growth in that, which is good. But it's about what you'd expect, about 3% a year, you know, population-ish, GDP-ish is about what you'd want. And that's, that's exactly what you get from Woolies. It's what you expect from Woolies. This is uh, one of the best businesses on the on the stock exchange, in my view. It's not exciting. You're not going to get you know stockingly great returns. It's not sophisticated or, or, or kind of you know tech driven like a CSL or a Zero or something else. But it's just straight down the fairway, high quality business operation, great brand, mm. uh, really good execution. It's a, it's a fantastic business. Like Luke, though, I, I do blanch at the at the price. I, I don't know that you can pay 26, 27 times earnings for a business that's growing at those very modest rates. I don't think they're going to get meaningfully large profit growth for any extended period of time. And so really what you're doing is you're hoping investors will always pay those high 20 PEs. And maybe they will. But you don't. I think you, can, you can't grab a you know the old the old discounted cash flow or something else and say is it justifies the current price based on the growth trajectory. You have to say okay, it's all it's expensive, but it's always going to be, and that's how I'm going to get my returns. What that means is that the the, the return to my mind is relatively asymmetric. It's not going to get a, a growth, and I don't think at any time soon to justify the PE. So your entire thesis, if you're looking to beat the market from here, has to be the market will pay at least as much as it's paying now, probably more on an earnings multiple basis over time to give me that market beating return. I don't think that's likely. Mm. Um, in fact, I think it's very unlikely. And I think it's probably likely that over time, Woolies underperforms the market. So uh, like Luke, if you're looking for a really safe dividend paying company, Share price doesn't mean share price won't be volatile, but you you know you're going to get what you're going to get from Woolies. It's not under threat anytime soon. You've made good strides into e-commerce, uh, the click and collect delivery stuff. They're doing a really good job of that. Uh, so uh, yeah, this this is a very very um, middle of the road stock. It's a great cornerstone position for a conservative portfolio, maybe an income portfolio or a retirement portfolio. If you just wanted to know that you know that you know that Woolies will be around in five and ten years time, then it's a, a perfectly fine stock to own. Yep. I don't think it's going to beat the market though. So it's it's. It's only barely a hold for me. It's a hold for me on quality. And, and to your point before about Qantas, if you own Woolies, you probably own it for those reasons I've just talked about, in which case there's no reason to sell it. But if you said to me, you need to own a market-beating portfolio, does Woolies have a place there? I'd have to say no. So I think it's a hold if you own it. I wouldn't be buying it if you didn't. All right. Okay. This is a double hold then for Woolies. Now, to our next stock, Endeavour, which was actually spun off from Woolies a couple of years ago. Uh, so it's also out with an update there for sales. Um, it's, of course, the, the alcoholic drinks retailer and pub owner uh, from its retail division. Sales up 1.2%. Hotel segment up 18.5%. Scott, have you been contributing to that? It's <laughs> a very personal question, Andrew. And yes, yes, I have. Uh, not the... Not the- not the pubs business anytime recently. I don't think I've been to a, a Woolworths pub or never pub, I should say. Uh, I've definitely uh, spent a couple of dollars in Dan Murphy's in my time. So uh, they can thank me for part of that 1.2% growth, maybe even uh, more than last year. I'm not sure, but I'd have to I'd have to check the receipts. But there's a chance that I've, I've contributed to not only the sales, but also maybe to the growth. Um, this is a fascinating business, Andrew, because of those two component parts you just talked about. The recovery from COVID is still well and truly underway. Whether you look at Centre Group that owns Westfield, their um, footfall and, and sales growth continues to be really strong. And I talked at the very beginning about underlying earnings power. That's exactly uh, what we're trying to work out with Endeavor. Because on one hand, you've got the the bottle shop business, the, the, the Dan Murphys and others, BWS, um, that's pretty mediocre, frankly. We talk about inflation. Um, they must be going backwards volume-wise on the basis of, of those numbers. On the flip side, uh, the pubs business is coming back to life. Now, I don't think it's likely that sales growth for uh, packaged liquor, so again, bottle shops, is going to be that low next year. And I don't think there's any chance at all that sales growth at the pubs business is anywhere near as high because, again, the growth year on year is because last year was a depressed level of earnings. And frankly, if you're not going to the pub, you're probably, probably buying more from Dan Murphy's. Uh, so you've got that real adjustment here. And this is why this is a, a fascinating business to look at. Um, I like the brands. I think they've got a really clear positioning, particularly um, the, the bottle shop business. I don't love BWS. It's kind of a bit of a much of a much just with Liquorland and others. Uh, it's just your suburban bottle shop. Uh, there's probably a lot of customer loyalty, nor would you go out of your way to use it. So a little bit like Woolies, again, it's not owned by Woolies anymore, but 
you go to your local grocer probably, and that's why Woolies and Coles tend to march roughly in lockstep. The Bedam of his business though is different, and I think it is a real point of difference for them. Uh, Coles does have first choice, which is kind of their big box alternative, but Dan's is pretty clearly uh, the number one kind of big box, big discount uh, liquor shop in, in the country. So I like that business a lot. The pub's business, again, it, it is where it is where it is. Uh, I So, like, I like the defensive nature of the business. I'd happily own it, again, if I wanted some defensiveness. Uh, Woolies spun it out to try and get some, air quotes, value creation, as the cool kids like to say in, mm. uh, in investment banking land. Realistically, the two businesses, are, 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 you throw a blanket over them. Uh, not only valuation-wise, we're, there was about 23 times according to the numbers I've got here, you're going to have some volatile sales growth and volatile earnings growth because of that return to normality. I don't know how long it's going to take to net out, but my guess is by the end of the financial year, we're almost there. Uh, but it's going to take a full year's worth next year to start to get a real like-for-like comparison. Yeah. Uh, I like the business. I like the brands. Uh, it's a perfectly fine defensive business. 23 times earnings. Again, I don't think we're going to have massive growth in liquor sales over the next 10 years. So I don't know you're going to necessarily justify that price. I will say Endeavor's cheaper than Woolies to, to my mind. Probably not the same growth, but because PEs tend to be exponential as you go up the up the chain, um, 23 times for Endeavor is probably meaningfully cheaper than 28 for Woolies, I would mm-hmm. guess. So uh, again, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go a hold if you want or a hold for conservative yep. or income investors. I don't think it's a market beater either. All right. Okay, Luke. I won't press you on your drinking habits, but uh, what are your thoughts <laughs> hey, on Endeavour? Fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I've also spent my fair share. Don't worry about that. Um, look, I, I, again, agree with a lot of what Scott said. Um, I I think, like, this, you can tell this has come out of Woolies. It's, you know, I agree with Scott. It's going to be a low single-digit growth business moving forward once you wash out all of this, you know, give and take around the depressed periods and and have uh, elevation in certain segments over the others. The the main difference between the two businesses and where – go back to Scott's point about Woolworths spinning it as a value creation event. It was probably – it probably wasn't a coincidence that it got spun out at the same time. There was a, a bit of talk about regulation, particularly around that hotel segment with pokies. Um, and, and is a big contributor to, to the profit engine of that hotel segment. Um, I think Baron Joey or, or one of the larger brokers had a note out a while back and they estimated it could be close to almost all of the profits of the hotel segment actually comes from pokies, um, you know, effectively subsidises the, the food and drink that we all enjoy. Um, so that's probably the main difference when I think about the two businesses and why I would prefer Woolies over Endeavour. I don't think Woolies has that same sort of regulation or, or, or legislation risk. Um, and you're seeing it play out with, a, with with Star and Crown Casino. I think Tasmania has already made a push to, to sort of try and regulate poker machines. And if it happened in New South Wales and Queensland where Endeavour sort of have most of their footprint, I think it could actually hit their profits quite a bit. Um, and so obviously that multiple, which is quite elevated, you know, it, it needs those earnings to stay high. So, um, look, I would, again, like Scott, I would hold it if you're there. Mm-hmm. Um you know, but I would probably prefer Woolies out of the two if you were looking for yep. that defensive exposure. All right. Okay. We better pick up the pace as we go. Let's get into MA Financial also with an update. In fact, uh, it's brought credit asset manager Blue Elephant Capital Management to enter the US credit market, and that's uh, in a bid to launch a fund to give its clients access to credit markets in the US. Luke, what are your thoughts on MA Financial? Yeah, a bit more positive on this one, Andrew. I'd actually say it's a buy for for a long-term investor. Um, You know, this has been pitched as like a mini Macquarie bank and and it's a bold statement to make, I know, but you look at what they're trying to do and you can see the similarities. It's it's basically taking a bunch of very smart people, giving them access to capital and and saying, you know, go around the world, find the pockets of value and, and invest not only the MAF's balance sheet, but also external funds that they have under management as well. Um, and, and, you know, generate returns for themselves and shareholders. And, and like Macquarie Bank, it's how you incentivize those people um, to, to do the best they can. And, and you, can, you can get very great uh, returns as shareholders if, you, if you're along for the ride. Um, about 13 times earnings. The share price has been beaten around a bit. You can see on that chart, there's been a few changes to uh, regulations and rules, particularly around foreign investors where they previously had a, a, a nice foothold in. Um 
how that's going to shake out over longer term, not quite sure. But I come back to that point I said at the start. I think this is a buy for a long-term investor um, who can maybe just look through a bit of that shorter-term noise around rules and regulations mm. and trust in the fact that you're investing alongside some some very smart people incentivized to make money alongside you. The acquisitions today look fine. And again, it's an example of that exact strategy. Five million bucks up front, but they're bringing over a um, US uh, credit credit fund, um, $275 million under management. It's not a huge acquisition. This, you know, MAF already had $8 billion themselves. So from that point of view, it's not, you know, um, Pendle and, and um, uh, Perpetual coming together or anything like that. But they're bringing in some some very clever people, appointing them to some senior roles in the business and now will look to, you know, use that as a foothold to expand in the US and particularly into that US credit market. So, yep. you know, I don't, I don't hold the business, but if I'm someone who's looking for that style of long-term investing and just um, looking to invest a lot alongside some very smart people, I think you can start buying this stock around these levels. All right, good one. Scott? Yeah, I, I really like the deal too. I think if you have a core competence and you want to try and expand your market, that makes a whole lot of sense. And frankly, we've seen plenty of Australian businesses try to go international and not quite make it because they were trying to create their own beachheads. I, I do think what you, you know, there are plenty of people at Macquarie and, and Financial, sorry, who probably said, hey, we could build this ourselves. And they probably could have, and they probably, they might've done reasonably well. Um, buying something that exists and then growing that is generally speaking, particularly in this area where you're not trying to necessarily uh, sell a consumer product. If, you, if you're Woolies trying to buy something else, then turn that into Woolies, it's much harder. Now, when you're in my financial, your, your business is, is effectively money. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter as much what you buy or what you uh, what you try and create. They're, they're much or much less realistically, particularly if you work on the back end of how it's being managed and who's doing the work. So I like the deal. Mm-hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. It does give them relatively low risk expansion opportunity. If it comes to nothing, they've wasted a bit of money, but it's not going to kill them. If it goes really well, the upside's pretty big. So I, I think it's a relatively asymmetric bet, which is, which is generally a good approach. And, and I think to Luke's point, I blanch a little bit at the current level of earnings, uh, particularly because this business has been a little more volatile than you would necessarily expect. Uh, The last three or four years have been really good growth, but if you go back five years, earnings now are much larger than there. So depending on what framework you use, they're either up a little bit over five years or up a lot over three or four years. Uh, and that's probably a question for investors is how strong and how safe is the, you know, I'll use the phrase, I'm sorry to overdo it, the underlying earnings power. You know, what is what is the average uh, earnings or how cyclical might this business be depending on circumstances in financial markets? Yep. But to Luke's point, there are smart people running this company. They know what they're doing. Uh, I, I, I agree with him in terms of the, the kind of the mini Macquarie kind of idea. That being said, we've been there before with Babcock and Brown and others. Uh, you know, Macquarie is not easily copied uh, and there are definite risks that that are in that market overall i do agree i'm gonna i mean i'll I'll cautiously call it a buy Uh, Mm. it's not as cheap as i'd like it to be uh, but i do think the the potential uh probably outweighs the risks and on that basis if you don't mind a bit of volatility you're investing if you understand what you're doing with financials particularly uh in the week where we've seen first republic go to the wall not that they're anyway related directly yeah uh, but given the risks in financials more broadly uh given i've already mentioned babcock and brown i don't want to i don't want to necessarily paint them with the same brush but as long as you know what you're doing as long as you're understanding the risk you're taking and the fact the valuation isn't particularly cheap uh, I do think cautiously you could buy the shares, yeah. All right. That is one then for our investment committee to consider a double buy on MA Financial. Our next one is Service Stream. Rob wanting to know about this saying, it's got a new contract, seems to be turning around, or am I kidding myself? Uh, well, Scott, uh, it's half year results back in February, uh, uh, increase, uh, 75% increase in revenue, EBITDA up 40%. How do you see this one? So there's a there's an old Warren Buffett aphorism that sell, a turnaround seldom turn. Uh, I I think it's it's not so much a turnaround here, mate, as a a cyclical or volatile business. Uh, we as investors we can't talk about secular or cyclical as if they're the only two options, and I think that can be true. But there's also within those cycles uh, there's just genuine genuine volatility, particularly if you're in the services business. And I haven't liked IT services companies for the longest time, or services businesses in general. You're going to kind of expand that out to even to to kind of mining contractors or, or or you know civil contractors, for example, because they tend to be very volatile based on how much work is available. Of course, Service Stream in the past did a lot of work for the NBN and for Telstra. Uh, that work finished, and then you got to try and work out what to do next. Extrapolating growth for these guys is really, really difficult. Not just service room, by the way, anybody in this space, because 
you, it does depend on how much work is available, how much of that you can win, and what margins you have to accept. Because this is a uh, this is a price taking industry. Very few of them have anything particularly new or original or different to add to what they're doing. They're doing the work for somebody else. They bring the staff, they bring the the equipment, and get the work done. So I really don't like these businesses. They don't have, in my opinion, um, meaningful competitive advantage or anything sustainable about that. They're they're not bringing IP to the table. Uh, sometimes they might have some slight geographic benefits or advantages. Uh, they might, for example, have specializations that make them more likely to win certain business. But if you've got an oversupply of contractors, uh, as I said, the margins end up getting compressed. And generally speaking, you wear the cost of any overruns, mm. the client happily uh, takes any benefit. So it, it's just, it's structurally just not an attractive industry to be in. It, it, with investing, you want to find businesses that have attractive economics uh, that, that are sustainable, that give you some reason to believe they can maintain a level of profitability. If you buy these businesses cheap enough on that sort of again, not cyclical, but but volatile base. If you get a depressed level of earnings, the share price is down, maybe you might get an, you know, a, an asymmetric chance of a bigger upside just by definition because maybe things can't stay that bad for that long. I don't think the same is true of service streams, quite honestly. Um, 13 times earnings currently, earnings have been all over the place recently. If they can turn this around, mm. so, so low PE, relatively low level of earnings over the past three or four years. If they can turn this around or just get that contract, um, as, as the viewer said, and maybe turn things around, maybe there is some upside and maybe the share price does get re-rated, uh, but there's a lot of maybes in there. It's not kind of my style of investing. So yep. no, it's not, not, a, not a business that meets sort of quality criteria or the, or the reliability uh, criteria I'm looking for to try and work out how much I pay for it based on future earnings. Mm. Uh, so I'd give this one a miss. Okay, so you're passing on that. Luke, what are your thoughts yep. then? I've been negative on this one in the past, Andrew. Um, quick bit of history. Basically, um, rewind about uh, six, seven years ago, this business had a really good run, um, essentially installing the NBN, um, winning a lot of government contracts around the NBN, service and maintenance around it. Um, but they could see a big earnings hole coming as the NBN project was starting to wind back. And so they went out um, and acquired Lendlease's services business. And I thought they paid a lot of money for it, um, overpaid in effect. Um, and so when you read off those numbers before, about 75% revenue growth, 40% uh, EBITDA growth, headline, they're nice numbers, but a lot of shares were issued to acquire that business. And so at an earnings per share level, the business is still flat. Um, as Scott alludes to, the biggest problem you always have with these businesses is that's just project risk cost overruns you wear them and they've had to do that with a project up in queensland another 20 million provision in the last half now the business is trying to pivot to more of a maintenance style revenue which doesn't have that lumpy project risk and you are able to reprice contracts more easily they're usually rolling contracts rather than you know big lumps of, of three five year um uh, projects that's interesting 80% government work as well. That's interesting as well because the government, you know, if you're going to eke out higher margins in this sector, it's usually the government that will pay those higher margins rather than the private contractors, the, mm. the larger guys. So I think there's a reason to watch this. Has it turned around? Not yet. Um, there's a there's a potential that it could. I think there's a very valid um, thesis behind owning it even here today. I would probably sit on the sidelines just a little bit longer. Yep. One more quick point. Just the one thing I did I wasn't a big fan of, the business still carries a decent chunk of debt. I don't like to see these businesses carry debt in the first place um but they paid a dividend and had to take on more debt to do that to me that that, that sort of capital management is not what i want to see from a cyclical business like this although that being said it could be the management team having confidence in the in the future of the business and the and the contracts they've got in hand so um look i would hold it if you're there i think there's a very valid thesis if you're on the sidelines you know as scott said turn around seldom turn there's some, mm. some validity to that you can sit here and watch it just until you get more evidence that that turnaround is actually happening. All right. Okay. That is Service Stream. Right. Uh, we do need to pick up the pace. So let's get on to Silk Laser. It's been in play. West Farmers making a play for this business is the non surgical aesthetics uh, clinic operating across Australia and New Zealand. Um, so currently in talks, they're offering to buy $3.15 a share from West Farmers. Luke, how do you see this one? Well, it's a difficult one to talk about, Andrew. Like you said, there's the, the bid from West Farmers. Um, you know, the, the price trades a little bit below that as they normally do, just given uh, maybe some uncertainty it goes through. It is it is non-binding at this stage. Um, look, it floated only a few years ago at $3.45. Um, I think it's interesting to me that the board has sort of they haven't rolled over but but you know by all accounts unless a higher bid comes through they'll likely accept this bid from west farmers um 
and, and while it's close to that IPO price, it's worth noting that earnings have essentially doubled in the business over that time. So from a multiple level, they're you know accepting a price half of almost sorry a valuation half of almost what it was just a few years ago. Um, Look, if I held the the the, the stock, uh, I would probably I think a good a good um, rule of thumb for something like this is to take some profits uh, because you know it is non-binding. Wes Farmers can walk away, although. I think there's rationality behind them um, holding it. They do have a similar business and they would drive some synergies out of the acquisition. So I, I suspect mm. it goes ahead, but you know, maybe take a, a, a bit of profits, but continue holding. I, I don't think it's out of the question you see higher bids for this business. It, it would be an asset that would fit alongside a few different parties. So um, I would maybe take a, a quarter off something like that, take some profits and hold the rest. Okay, Scott. Yeah, I, I know we're pushed for time, Andrew, so I'll just say mostly what, what Luke said. Uh, I'll, I'll add just a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, yeah, I, look, you wouldn't buy it at today's price. The, maybe a little bit more, maybe maybe they walk away. Um, the, the range of outcomes is on the downside for buying at today's price. If you already own it, you've probably done reasonably well already, hopefully if you bought more recently rather than less. Uh, so maybe there's some, some opportunity there. Um, maybe you get a higher price. At some point when the takeover is formalised, you're probably going to want to take the money because waiting for that to be uh, consummated is probably already in the price. So the time value of waiting is probably all you're, you're, you're picking up by hanging around. So mm. uh, these things tend to be pretty efficiently priced once the takeover is confirmed. Uh, so I agree with Luke. I would be I'd be sitting pat now, uh, but I wouldn't wait till the consummation once the deal is finalised. As long as the price uh, reflects that, and it probably almost certainly will. Um, in terms of the business, I, I think Luke's point is really important. I'm always mindful. You know, if someone else wants to buy the business, they see more value than the market does and it always feels a little bit kind of like you know west farmers obviously paying a price they think is attractive in which case you know the, the shells would be selling at a price that maybe is not so attractive to them uh, more attractive to west farmers you always feel a little bit cheated by that if you're if you're a long-term shareholder if you believe in the long-term potential but that's water under the bridge um if this deal goes away the share price will fall by the way so if you're holding now mm. bear in mind it'll probably go ahead but if it doesn't you're probably going to be wearing a loss. So some people would like to take money and say, you know what, bird in the hand, take the cash now. I couldn't blame anyone for doing that. There is a chance though for a higher bid, uh, potentially, very unlikely, uh, and or that this gets consummated and the price just ticks up a couple of percent. Yep. So I, I'm, I'm 100% with Luke. I got to say, I probably would actually, unless it's a, a frank dividend or something in the offing like there is for Blackmores, I'd probably take the money now because the market's pretty efficient. Mm. I'd go put this into something else I had more conviction in given the, the, the race is pretty much run, uh, but also there's no harm in holding it as to see what happens next. All right, good one. Well, let's summarise the first half of the show. We began with our stock of the day, Qantas. That's off the back of news that uh, it has a was appointed a new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, as of November. But both our experts have a sell on the stock, essentially saying it can't maintain its current altitude. All right, let's get into the five as picked by you. Woolies, in fact, this is off the back of uh, some updates we've got to uh, today uh, in terms of sales. Uh, a hold from both on Woolies, although point out that it's perhaps a little expensive at this point, and to Endeavour also with the sales update there. And um, of course, it's a spun off from uh, from Woolies there. It's a uh, hold also from both. Uh, Luke, in fact, saying he prefers Woolies over Endeavour. Scott pointing out the COVID recovery is still underway there. To MA Financial, um, as it tries to expand with a slice in the States, it is a double buy for both for MA Financial. Luke describing it, describing it as a, a mini Macquarie bank, um, which interesting point of view. Scott pointing out, not cheap though at these levels. Service stream, uh, no from Scott. Uh, Luke, uh, he's watching for a turnaround, so essentially it's a hold. And finally, Silk Laser there. It's uh, look a trim from Luke. A sell from Scott, take your money now, uh, given that bid from West Farmers. All right, let's get into our portfolio, which we're uh, tracking, picked by our investment committee. The latest episode of that meeting is live here to watch at ausbiz.com. Checking in on the update, going into April, New Century was removed, WiseTech added, weightings of West Farmers and Macquarie went up by 2% each, and another 1.5% was added to Boss Resources, 7% cash was spent. So in terms of performance, it's up just over 9% on a cumulative return basis since its inception in March last year. So keep sending in your requests, keep the call switched on to see what our committee will be looking at next. Well, next for the second half of the show, we'll be looking at Rex Minerals, PWA Holdings, Santos, Credit Corp and Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. So Scott, 
Turex Minerals. It's a developer, but not a producer. And Copper, Copper Gold has a project in South Australia and in Nevada. Um, interesting, hard to find. I guess copper is seen as the next big thing as we move to, obviously, the electrification of the planet. Copper is critical mm. to that. It is. The question, as you say, is whether Rex can end up commercialising a viable quantity at a viable price to make enough money for its shareholders to justify the current price. And if that sounds like a long list of things that need to go right, then you're absolutely right it is. Uh, and that is the risk you take when you look at an explorer or developer. Um, they, they occasionally go well. Uh, most don't earn a, a squillion dollars. Uh, for what it's worth, this company is losing money, has for the last eight years straight. And during that time, the share count is up almost threefold, um, which tells you almost everything you need to know. If you owned 10 years ago, not only is there no profit to show for it yet, but you've been diluted uh, by two thirds in, in the process. I can't come at these ones, Andrew. It doesn't mean they can't potentially do well or some won't do well, uh, but you're kind of guessing at what might what this might look like at commercialization, at production stage. Um, we're still a meaningful way from that. Uh, it's it's one for the it's one for the uh, the speculator one for the gambler. I don't think you can invest reasonably based on what we know or think we know about the company. So it's, it's a hard sell for me. Yep. Okay. So that's a no from you, Luke. Uh, look, I know it's probably not a space you look in, but how do you view the company? Yeah. Look, it's it's not my space, Andrew. So I can't offer you know really in depth opinions on the on the uh, business itself. Look, I, I flicked through the presentation. The first thing that jumped out to me is this is an asset that's been around for a long time. Um, and when you find something like that, it usually suggests that it needs optimal commodity conditions to to you know have uh, good returns for shareholders or to even you know get into production. Um, so look. There's a long-term thesis for copper. I've heard a lot of people have very rational, you know, thesis around why copper could be the next commodity that goes on a multi-year bull run. And if that's the case, then someone like a Rex Minerals, even if they are a higher cost producer, could do okay. And you probably see the project get off the ground. But I would suspect that at a at a you know more normalized long-term history of the copper price, this is probably a marginal project. Um, and, and shareholders probably you know, don't get the returns I would expect. So, um, look, I, I don't know the business or, or the industry well enough to tell someone to sell. They would know more about this stock than I do, but that's just my you know, top-level top thoughts on a business like this when I see that that resource has been around for, for quite a while um, and you know, obviously hasn't been developed yet. So, yeah, I'd, I'd hold, I suppose, the program. A hold? Uh, yeah, sounds as though you've been drawn to that. It sort of really, it's a no, isn't it, from you? I would know. <laughs> That's okay. All right. I own it to hold. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's uh, move on to uh, PWR Holdings. Now, this is uh, it, it uh, designs and produces customized cooling uh, solutions for, for motorsport and the automotive industry. Uh, it's a very niche sort of. Uh, industry and what it does, obviously, Luke. What to, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, to be honest. Um, I'm not a not a rev head, so I guess I haven't come across it. But um, how do you view PWR Holdings? Yeah, very niche product. Um, mm. You know, high end motorsports, F1 and, and the like. Um, to be fair to them, they're trying to take their expertise around um, radiators and cooling and, and apply it to some other some other spaces. Just as niche, aerospace is, uh, you know, one of the ones they call out specifically in their reports now uh, as its own segment with some really strong growth, tripling year on year. Um, look, I think this is a great business, and the the track record points to that. The you know, it's almost um, bottom left to top right on on revenue and earnings high returns on equity, uh, good margins. Uh, you read their slides around culture and people. I think that's a that's a more qualitative research. It's hard to do for investors, but it's clear just looking at this at the way this business presents that they they clearly try to, to, to foster a strong culture of innovation within the business. Um, but we come back to the same thing we said about Woolworths at the start. Uh, it's the price you pay. Um, you know, upwards of 50 times earnings, potentially 60, depending on where the second half earnings land for the business. Um, that's a steep price, and there's a lot of growth factored into that. I'm surprised the share price has probably held up as well as it has considering the issues growth stocks have had um, over 2022 and the start of this year. Um, but look, 
I struggle to tell someone to, to sell a business of, of this sort of quality. So I think for the purpose of the program, Andrew, it's a hold. Um, what I would say, though, is you look at that longer-term chart there, five years, and, and you know if you're someone who's held it for that period of time, you're probably sitting on three or four times your initial investment. I would take some profits off that um, if it has gotten to a larger weight in your portfolio. Um, you know, Very rarely, as, as Scott sort of said on Woolworths, this business will give you the growth where you can compound that and, and, and potentially do well as a shareholder. But when you start at that sort of 50, 60 times earnings level, it's just difficult to beat the market from there over the longer term. So, you know, I'd maybe just reweight the portfolio, but I do struggle to tell someone to sell a business as good as this. Yeah. Okay. Scott? Yeah, great summary from Luke. It, it does come down to expectations of future growth, as these things always do. Uh, I, I've struggled with this one. Look, I'm going to say it's a cautious buy, Andrew, but with all of the risks that Luke has highlighted, um, it, it's a very steep price. The challenge with these guys, they've got a big and growing kind of new segments business that's hopefully, uh, so hopefully on behalf of shareholders, going to grow uh, to become a much larger portion of the current business. And if it does manage to do that, then what we will see is a really significant operating leverage shift. They're investing a lot of money in this new business area that yet hasn't delivered much in terms of profitability. So you really are, if you're, like, if you're buying anything at 50 times earnings, you've got to be absolutely boots and all into the growth story and believe they can execute on it. They have got a really good growth history, a really good story, Luke, so they're a quality business. He's absolutely right. Um, sales have been growing, profits have been growing despite this investment uh, in these new business areas. So it is it is going to, the investment thesis will live or die on the basis of that. Let's be really clear. If that new business doesn't end up paying its own way uh, and justifying the faith investors having it. The share price could probably halve from here. Now, realistically, you know, from 50 to 25 times earnings, still not, by the way, cheap at that point. Uh, so it could, it could halve and still be meaningfully above the, the market average PE. So you've got to take that into account. You've got to have a cast iron stomach and you've got to have a diversified portfolio with a willingness to take a bit of risk on these quality businesses if you believe that growth story can genuinely come through. I think it probably, I think it can. Uh, so I, I will say it's a cautious buy uh -huh. for investors with a very high risk tolerance. Uh, but bear in mind, anything at 50 times earnings, uh, look, there's been plenty of, a uh, few times earnings have gone badly, a couple that have gone well. You're probably not uh, on average going to do well buying businesses at this sort of valuation. I think PWI has enough to justify it. Certainly a couple of the team at The Motley Fool really like it. Uh, so I'm going to kind of take their uh, their confidence yeah. and the potential for this business to say it's a, it's a, a, a very cautious buy, um, or maybe maybe not a cautious buy. It's, it's a high risk buy, yeah. but I think on balance it'll beat the market from here. Okay, interesting. All right, let's uh, get into the energy sector now with uh, the Australian giant Santos. Uh, now, most recently, in fact, it's looking to offload a 5% stake in its, um, uh, or its 5% stake of PNG LNG to Kuma, which is the state-owned enterprise in PNG, although apparently it's been hit with some fresh delays there. But more broadly, Scott, um, how do you view Santos, I guess, given also what's going on in the oil and gas market at the moment? Yeah, how do I view it? The answer is very cautiously, Andrew, because mm. um, this is a business that on the face of it looks pretty cheap, seven times earnings, uh, and yet those earnings are I think, the highest in the last 10 years. And so that is very much the story right now. The market is saying that they don't, market doesn't believe, investors don't believe as a group, this level of earnings is sustainable. If, if you could, and you paid seven times earnings for a business with a, with a sustainable level of earnings, you'd, you'd make money every day of the week. The, the, the clear inference from the market is the, the profit's likely to come back in their view, in the market's view, uh, and that, that PE will normalize. The question for investors is how far does it come back? And the answer to that question is, well, what's the oil price going to be in one, three, five, and 10 years' time? I have absolutely no idea, mate. So uh, to Luke's point earlier about Rex and others, um, uh, if you think you can forecast the oil price, firstly, good luck to you. But secondly, uh, then then you can make it uh, take an informed view on Santos. I, I don't think you can. Um, I, I think it's a very, very difficult thing to do because not only is it a commodity broadly, which is very, very difficult, but secondly, OPEC is controlling this market price-wise. And so you've got to guess what they might do, what the impact might be on the price. Uh, there's, there's so much guesswork here. And it's. 
I, I would, I dare say, anyone with confidence in their forecast is probably overconfident by definition mm. because you just can't know what's going to happen. For all we know, OPEC could flood the market with oil. The oil price falls to $25 and, and all bets are off or they restrain it. Price goes over 100 bucks, and, and you, you make a fortune. I don't know how you reasonably assess the, the odds of that. So me, I, I'm saying well away. Mm-hmm. I can't say it's definitely a sell for the reason that Luke highlighted with Rex before. Um, because again, maybe the oil price does go higher. You know, so am I confident to sell? No. Do I want to play that game? No. If I owned yeah. it, I would sell it because it's not my style of investing. Uh, I, I, I struggle. I struggle together, mate. I'll mm. say it's. I'll say it's just a hold uh, because it's it's a cheap PE on a high level of earnings. Over time, that probably normalizes-ish. And so maybe it's roughly market matching, but it's very, very hard to tell from here. All right. No, we don't have a gun to your head, so you don't have to hold it. You don't have to buy it either way. Yeah, so uh, Luke, um, yeah, likewise, I guess, not really in uh, your wheelhouse, but uh, how do you look at Santos? Well, everything Scott just said about the underlying commodity and the difficulties of forecasting that, and that will be the driver of the earnings you know, in the business. You know, you also have to have some sort of confidence in operationally how will the business perform. And, you know, Santos just through its history has been a business that shot itself in the foot for for a long time, production issues and um, all sorts of other things. And even just I quickly open up their first quarter report, you know, production was down 13% year on year. Some of that maybe was expected, but, you know, you looked at their um, full year guidance and it didn't seem like there was going to be a huge ramp up in production over the rest of the year, um, even just annualising the first quarter got you the bottom end of their range so look it, it's a cheap multiple and that's the only thing that would sort of um keep me to hold andrew um otherwise unless you deliberately wanted exposure to a large cap oil and gas producer um and even then you'd probably go for woodside um i, I would sell santos and, and look to put your money somewhere else but but mm. specifically if you wanted that exposure then it's cheap enough to, to own yep okay good one that's santos all right, our next stock is Credit Corp. Um, it's a pick by Joseph. It is uh, what well, it it buys debt, it collects debt, uh, you know, particularly from uh, small businesses in Australia and New Zealand and uh, and elsewhere. And most recent earnings uh, did was expectations. It it uh, it's a missed on those, but it does expect a recovery. Just taking a look at share price, it has been in a downward trend. Luke, what's your view on Credit Corp? Um, an extremely well-run business in a tough industry. Um, and there's a lot of businesses you know, around the world that have proven that as shareholders, you can get extremely good returns, even in tough industries, if you've got good operators at the helm, you know, and, and Credit Corp's management have proven adept at that over a very long period of time through the GFC, you know, but the, the toughest stress you could have. Um, the core part of the business, purchasing debt ledgers and, and looking to recoup, you know, more than the, the price they paid, um, that business is going through, you know, headwinds and, and tailwinds. Um, you know, there's more debt ledgers becoming available as credit conditions tighten and utilities and financials are, are selling more debt onto the market. Um, they're finding it difficult to collect, though, and you've seen that with their, their productivity percentages, what they call it, of, of, their, um, of their staff. So they've seen that spike up a little bit. So from expense level it's become a little bit more expensive um but to cycle back to your point andrew on the first half numbers looking quite ugly the reason for that was a big ramp up in their lending division which is wallet wizard we've probably all seen the ads on tv um and there's a bit of a quirk in the accounting for um these sorts of lending businesses where you take an upfront provision against the loan um you know so from an accounting point of view you're already provisioning for some of those loans to go bad but you wear that upfront you know at the time the loan is created and credit corp to their credit have extremely conservative provisioning like a quick look through their reports it's it's around 20%. So, you know, if you've got a view as an investor that you don't think 20% of their loan book will go bad, then they've over-provisioned and the accounting numbers don't match the underlying, you know, earnings power as, you know, um, Scott's brought up a few times during the show. So I can easily look through those numbers. I, I suspect they're well and truly conservative and over-provisioned, but I expect that from this business. Like I said, it's a management team that over time has proven they are conservative, they run their business well. So, I would look through that first half result towards the guidance they gave in the second half. Um, and just as a, as a note, I would also, you know, if you have peers in that same sort of consumer lending space, it's worthwhile having a look at what they provision versus someone like a credit corp who I consider to be the you know, the best operators in the space. And mm. It makes for some sober reading where you see where some of these other guys are provisioning their books right now. So um, I could actually come to a buy on credit corp. 
um, similar to, I forget the stock we're talking about before, but um, a long-term investor. Um, there will be definitely some volatility, definitely the share price, but even the underlying business. As I said, there's a lot of moving parts to this business right now on the supply demand side, but I just trust these guys as operators through the cycle that I think you can buy it at this sort of valuation in this time. All right, Scott. Uh, again, I think we've covered it beautifully, not left me much to say. I agree with the quality of the credit court business. They've done a really good job over a long period of time at managing this business. If I have a reservation, it's the movement over time in, uh, imagine two waves. One wave is the price of the debt they're buying. The other is the collectability of that debt. Now, when the economy is going fantastically well. Uh, you're probably paying a little bit more for the debt uh, because uh, it's probably, you know, most people are able to pay it. So those who aren't paying are probably not going to be able to pay it back. But your collections are probably also reasonably high because of the same reasons. When things are tough, you're going to pay less for it because there's going to be more debt out there. So just supply and demand. And you're probably going to collect it less because more people are out of work or simply can't pay it back. Those are the top and bottom of the cycle. The challenge for investors is the transition between those two in both directions. Because at some point you've paid for old debt, but then economic conditions get worse and you're collecting less. So you've paid premiums, but you're you're, you're collecting less. Other times you're you're paying uh, a very good price because there's so much debt out there. And as the economy improves, some of those people who previously couldn't have paid it back all of a sudden can. And so you end up with better margins. And so that transition period is a really, really tough thing to, to look at. And I think while the market's maybe, you know, we're paying 13 odd times for credit corp at the moment, what well, the market's trying to guess is where are we on that cycle? I think we all know the economy is slowing. Maybe we have a recession, maybe we don't. Maybe higher interest rates are putting more people into uh, you know, mortgage debt and maybe unser- unserviceable personal debt, including uh, some of the debt that Credit Corp's gonna try and collect. Uh. If they're paying full price for the debt, but not collecting much, that's really gonna hurt their recoveries and therefore hurt their margins. And I think the market's probably betting on that. Uh, To Luke's point, through the cycle, they're pretty good. The question is, is now the right time and the right price, given those cyclical concerns? I am gonna also say a cautious buy for all the reasons Luke's highlighted. It's a quality business, through the cycle they should be okay. If you've got a long-term perspective in particular, I don't know if this is gonna be the best time to buy. It may be even the case that you uh, take losses on your share price before you get gains again, because it might be a, a process. This is not a risk-free investment either, by the way. Credit Corp have got themselves in trouble in the past, and share price did fall precipitously uh, at previous junctures. So bear that in mind, this is going to possibly be a volatile journey. I won't say probably or even definitely, yep. but possibly a volatile journey. Just be a little bit careful, but I do think if you are gonna buy shares in this one for the long term, and you should if you're a, an investor by definition, that should be long term. Uh, then I think you can buy at today's price to Luke's point. Just know yeah. uh, that this is a business that can be volatile. Uh, the, the cost of that debt and the collectability of that debt can be very volatile and not necessarily in the same direction at the same time. So uh, buckle up. Yep. Uh, but I think at 13 times earnings, it's probably a very good risk reward proposition. Yep. Interesting. All right. That is a double buy. Another one for the investment uh, committee to consider. All right. We're almost out of time. So we better make this one quick. Scott, we're taking a look at Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Um, and uh, obviously the smaller of, uh, of the banks out there. In fact, uh, it's it's been falling. Uh, UBS slapping a, a sell rating on it with an $8 price target. It's $8.68. I know you don't go for price targets, but what's your consideration for Bendigo and Adelaide? If the economy continues to be good or recover, nine times is really cheap for Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. So the question you've got to ask yourself as an investor is uh, how much does this, again, let's use the phrase one last time, how much does this represent the underlying earnings power or how much is this too high or too low relative to the long-term earnings potential? Um, I think Bendigo and Adelaide Bank is probably relatively cheap. It's certainly cheaper than most of the big banks. If you want a banking exposure, I would probably tend towards these smaller banks rather than the big guys. You're probably paying roughly half of what you pay per dollar of earnings from Commonwealth Bank for example. Um, so I don't own any of the banks. I wouldn't rush out to buy them because of that risk. But if you liked the banking sector, if you wanted exposure to the banks, be mindful. This is a very regional bank, uh, probably slightly different risk criteria than maybe the big guys. By the same token, I think I'd probably at this stage in the market prefer that mm. than massive capital city exposure. So I wouldn't buy it right now. But if I was going to buy a bank, it'd be in the front line of my choices. Yep. Okay. Luke? 
I pretty much agree with that, Andrew. I'm not rushing out to buy banks, um, but when I flicked open the first half result for these guys, it was a lot better than I expected. Um, particularly, you know, I, I wouldn't sit there and compare them to the big four, although it looks better than probably a handful of those guys. But if you compare it to, to like a Bank of Queensland, which is their, their closest peer, um, I thought these guys were head and shoulders, um, you know, the, the metrics and, and particularly the direction they're going. Um, it appears to be a very well-run business. You're not paying a, a high price for it um if you're someone who is after you know stability and a bit of a higher yield than what the big four are giving you i think you can definitely come down to someone like a bendigo but you know for younger investors or investors seeking growth you know you're not looking at the banks in general but you know older dividend focused investors i think this is one um as scott said it's probably yeah top of the list from the that point of view all right, so no, uh, but if you were to consider a bank, a uh, yes. Uh, that's uh, the view of both Scott and Luke. All right, let's summarise where we've been for the second half of the show. Uh, Rex Minerals. Uh, look, a no from both is in the copper space. It's a developer, not a producer. So, um, And Scott pointing out it's been uh, losing money for the past eight years. PWR Holdings. Um, Luke uh, likes it. Uh, it is saying it's uh, innovative, but uh, does look expensive. Uh, he's got a hold, but saying probably take a bit of profit at this point. Scott, a cautious buy, also referring to that steep price at the moment. Um, Santos in the oil and gas space. Uh, it is um, a hold from Scott. Uh, so it does look cheap, um, but the market doesn't think so. And uh, Luke, he actually has a sell on it. So not really interested in Santos. Credit Corp. Well, it's interesting. Both essentially putting a buy on it. A cautious buy from Scott. Uh, Luke pointing out it is a very well-run business. And Bendigo and Adelaide Bank there finally. Look, both not really uh, prepared to buy banks at this point, but to think it looks better than most in that sector at this point. All right. Well, thanks to our experts on the show today. Luke, thanks for joining us at Meriwether Capital. Thanks, Andrew. Good one. And Scott from The Motley Fool, thanks as always. Always enjoyable. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Luke. Cheers, mate. All right. Uh, any stocks you'd like us to cover, you can go to osbiz.co forward slash call picks or tweet us at TV. Stay with us. The Pulse is up next. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 